Our scripture reading for Nate's sermon is um, from the Gospel of John, chapter 4, beginning with verse 6. If you would give your attention to the reading of God's Word. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is, that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You will worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Father, would you now open our eyes, the eyes of our hearts, that we might see that which we would not see until you do. Would you speak to us that we would hear the voice of Jesus? Come to us, feed us, Strengthen us, we pray, in Christ our Lord. Amen.
Well, as I noted at the very beginning of our time together today, we are taking, as is our custom here at Cornerstone, a few weeks to remind ourselves of who we are in Christ and what it is that the Lord has called us to do. We have traditionally, the first few weeks in uh, the beginning of a year, uh, taken time to revisit uh, our vision as a local congregation. I noted in those opening comments today the fact that in the pastoral notes I spend a little bit of time talking through the aspect of the vision that we're going to talk about over the next few weeks together. Um, It might be helpful just to pull that out once again if you have your pastoral notes close by. I want to simply um, draw attention to that single sentence that I'm asking you to commit to memory over the next uh, few weeks together as we work through um, the vision. Because it's there where we talk about kind of two Ps, the purpose for our existence as a local congregation and the platforms through which that purpose is expressed. Uh, The purpose is right there at the beginning of that little statement, to glorify God in the gospel. Some of you know that the very first question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism is, what is man's chief end? The answer to that question is, man's chief end is to glorify God, to enjoy Him forever. We believe that's the first and primary call that's been placed upon every heart and upon every soul. And we want to be a congregation that equips for the glorifying of God in the gospel. But you also see in that statement not just the purpose, you also see the platforms. If we were to dissect it, which we won't take a lot of time doing today, we have several weeks together to be able to pack this statement in the text of Scripture, you'll see four platforms that we're committed to. Worship, fellowship, discipleship, and mission. They're all embedded in that one little sentence. It's pretty packed. And if you look at those four platforms, I think that you'll see these are the platforms, we might say the means, that God has given us to inculcate, to tend, and to nurture the glorification of God in the gospel. I think that will become clear in our weeks to come, but specifically today I want to talk about discipleship and in the weeks to come. What it means to be a disciple, a word that we throw around a good bit, but might not have um, much description around, or it might have just become a churchy word that we don't really remember now what it means, but also the, the discipline, the central discipline of being a disciple, which is making disciples. What does it mean to be committed as a local congregation to the multiplication of disciples? Now, if, you were gonna, if I was going to name one thing, as I mentioned at the beginning of our time together, I think we need to grow in as a local congregation, it would be in the making of disciples. I think that's a really important skill and a commitment that we as a people must continue to both remind, nurture, challenge, attend within our hearts and lives together. And I'm hoping over the next few weeks we'll do just that in a way that you'll be walking away from the text of Scripture and your home fellowship group meetings as you go through the very back of the bulletin, the taking the message home, that you'll be spurred to have conversations about Christ in ways that you would typically um, shy away from or in fear just not engage We want to head off those concerns at the beginning of 2017 and ask the Lord, Lord, renew our commitment in this, that we would walk according to your word. I believe John 4 is a great way of getting into that discussion because John 4 is a veritable test case in disciple-making. We might say it's a disciple-making lab 
that Jesus puts on for us here. And what we're going to do over the next few weeks is actually sit in this text. We're not going to be going too fast uh, through John 4. We've called this series Portraits of Discipleship. We're going to pull in various portraits over the course of multiple years as we seek to train and equip for discipleship. This is just the first of what I hope will be many vignettes over the ministry of Jesus where we'll grow in what it means to be and make disciples. But in this one, I think it's one of the fullest expressions. It's actually one of the longest in all of the gospel writings, engagements with Jesus and another individual we find right here in John chapter 4. And so we get some details that we don't sometimes get to see in some of the other um, stories of Jesus' ministry. And so it's important that we camp out for a few weeks and look at this text under a number of headings to kind of drain from it what it is we can learn about what it really means to be a disciple. Today I want you to think in what is the foundation of discipleship, and I want you to think of what is the power for discipleship. The foundation of discipleship, and what's the power for discipleship? Because I think those are the two things that really get us started. What does it mean for us, if we're going to be a disciple of Christ, what foundation do we need to stand on? If we're going to make disciples of Christ, what's the power that we need to, be, that we need to inhabit or we need to possess? Where does it come from? How do, we, how do we leverage it? How do we use it? How does the Bible call us into it? So I want you to think in those two categories. As you think in those two categories, I want you to look with me at this passage in three ways. All right, Thinking in those categories, we're going to look at this passage in three ways. I want you to see first the boundaries that every disciple maker must cross. I want you to see first the boundaries that every disciple maker must cross. I want you to see, secondly, the belief that every disciple maker must hold. The belief that every disciple maker must hold. And I want you to see, thirdly, the skill that every disciple maker must learn. The boundaries we must cross, the beliefs we must hold, the skills we must learn in order to be and make disciples. I want to start with the boundaries that every disciple maker must cross. In summary form, the passage really teaches us that that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ extends to every single person. Each person that we come in contact with in our daily life is a prospective, potential follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Absolutely everyone. I want to show you how Jesus displays that from John chapter 4. If you know anything about the Jews and about the Samaritans, you know this. They don't get along. They don't like each other. This, these two groups have no love loss for one another. Now, why is that the case? Well, there's several reasons why I don't want to unpack them for you. The first is there's a racial tension that exists between Israelites, Jews, and Samaritans. According to a Jew, a Samaritan was really a half-breed. They were interlopers into the Jewish ancestry. They were not a part of the original people of God who were called out of Egypt into the land of Canaan. They were, in fact, Canaan dwellers whom the Israelites intermarried with. Therefore, according to the Israelites, Samaritans are not really part of the true lineage of God, even though Samaritans very regularly claimed to be so. The racial tension stemmed in large part by the varying claims of the lineage that these two believe that they have being, quote-unquote, the people of God. But that racial tension, as you can probably hear in that, is rooted, secondly, in a religious tension. The Samaritans, according to the Jews, were heretics. 
The Samaritans only accepted the writings of Moses. They didn't accept any of the other of the Old Testament writings. And in fact, the writings of Moses they only accepted when it came to them in the Samaritan alphabet, which had many different variations from the original Hebrew writings that were given to Moses. In fact, according to some scholars, upwards to 6,000 differences between the Hebrew Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, and the Samaritan Pentateuch, the first five books of the Samaritan canon. One of the significant variances, because there weren't very many uh, variances that were of significance. Most of them were just grammatical. But one of the very significant um, differences between the Samaritan Pentateuch and uh, the Pentateuch of the Hebrews was the fact that the Samaritans have an insertion within the, the writings of Moses where he commands an altar to be built on Mount Gerizim, which would be his place of worship. Now, you catch that dialogue happening behind what's taking place here in John chapter 4. If you look with me at verse 20 in John chapter 4, you'll see that after the woman perceives that Jesus is a prophet, after he's told her everything about her history, she begins to engage him in a theological discourse. It actually feels quite awkward. Um, It seems like they're going down a certain path in conversation, and the woman says, hey, I picked up on the fact that you just told me my entire history without knowing me. I think you're a prophet. Because you're a prophet, I want to ask you a question about where we ought to worship. Now that seems very off-center from what the whole dialogue of John 4 is talking about. But the reality is she was actually addressing the very central debate between Israelites and Samaritans, and he was a Jewish prophet. So it makes perfect sense in her mind, I'm never going to get a better shot to, to ask someone who's in the know on this matter than this guy right here before me. So it looks like a a really evading, and it has part of that, a discussion of Jesus is moving more personal towards it, but also has a great opportunity for her to address what was a burning theological issue of the day. There's racial tension, there's religious tension that's going on that's mentioned here in verse 20, it's actually referenced, but behind this and in and around this text, we see that there's gender tension. It's all over the place. We know quite well that in Israelite and Samaritan culture in the Middle East in the first century was patriarchal. And we know that it was not the custom of the day for men. In fact, it was quite shocking for any man to speak to a woman in public that he was not related to or did not know personally. Um, You can see the shock in the woman's voice in verse 10. How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a woman... Of Samaria. Notice he's referencing both the ethnic and the gender tension that should exist between them. How is it that you do this? You are, in a sense, breaking every book, um, every rule in the book on what is an appropriate cultural um, maneuver here in engagement in the first century. Now, we didn't read this section today, but we're going to pick up on it next week. Next week, when the Jesus um, disciples come back on the scene, they come back on the scene in verse 27. Uh, John tells the John says of the disciples they marveled at the fact that Jesus was speaking to the woman. Now that word uh, marvel is not like oh this is amazing. No, it's more like we are deeply concerned about what this means. It has the range of upset. We're unsettled. In fact, he begins to dialogue about the questions that are flowing in their heads in verses 28 and 29. They begin, no one asked him why it was he was speaking with her. They were very concerned about what this would uh, reflect, what this might even say. 
uh, uh, you know, what would be the public's uh, understanding about what is happening here. There's an incredible tension in this text. There's even a deeper tension. There's a moral tension in this text, a social tension that's here in this text. John tells us that the woman goes to the well in the sixth hour. Now that's in the very middle of the day. That's in noon. First we know that that women historically didn't go to the well in the middle of the day. In fact, they went at the very beginning of the day, at the earliest hour or at the dawn. They did it because the water actually was the, the main tool that a woman needed to accomplish all of the tasks that were before her for that day. If she was going to cook, if she was going to clean, if she was going to wash, if she was going to do anything, she was going to need to have water. So it was the very first priority when she got up in the morning to make her way to the well. It was also the earliest day, which meant it was cool. We are in the Middle East. So you didn't go in the middle of the day. That was a time where you'd be searching for shade. This woman goes at the middle of the day. We're also told by Luke that she goes alone. He makes it a point to note that there's nobody else with her. This is something women would not do. They would not walk in the middle of the day alone. They walk together for purposes of security. Uh, This woman is out here when nobody else is out there, all alone. And we re- begin to realize, oh, there's a moral and social tension that's in the midst of this passage. Well, wh- where do we see that? Well, we see that when Jesus begins to talk to her about her past. Uh, when Jesus speaks about this living water that we're going to talk about more next week together, he says, great, you're interested in it. Go get your husband. Now, I would, I would suggest to you that there's maybe no more incisive request than that in the entirety of the text of John chapter 4. Because in that moment, Jesus is doing something very particular. But one of the things that he's doing is he is actually raising the fact that she is a woman that has a past. The moral tension of the passage is what he's actually bringing to the surface by that question. It seems almost as if Jesus, like her, later asking about the, whether we should worship on Mount Gerizim or whether we should worship in, in Jerusalem, it feels like it's maybe off-center from what actually we ought to be talking about. But in fact, Jesus is going at the very center of what this woman needs to address in her life. When he asks her the question, go get your husband. Now, we're going to talk about that more in a minute. But she responds... I don't have a husband. Shrewd. Jesus actually says, you are right. You technically tell the truth because indeed you've had five husbands and the man you're sleeping with right now is not even your husband. What this means is that this woman is a serial adulterer. She wasn't welcome to go with the other women in the reputable women on the way to the well early in the morning. She had to go alone. She had to go in the heat of the day. She went where hopefully nobody would see her and where she wouldn't have to run into anyone who was around her. This is what's going on in the text. These are the boundaries, the racial boundaries, the religious boundaries, the gender boundary, the moral boundary. These are the things that keep us from talking to people who are different than us. They're the, thing, they're the labels that we attach to one another to sort of size each other up, to come to an understanding about what kind of person this is. And they're the kind of barriers that quite often we're just unwilling to cross. 
And what Jesus does in this passage is he speaks to her. He speaks to her. But one of the driving points of this passage is the shocking fact that Jesus speaks to her. He is a Jew. She is a Samaritan. They ought not talk. He is a man. She is a woman. They should not be in conversation. She is a religiously her- a heretic. He's orthodox. He is, the, he is a righteous man. She is a woman of ill repute. But he reached through each one of these barriers. He crossed every sociological obstacle in order to speak to this woman. Now the question is, why? Now before we answer the question why, I want you to just see what this text is setting up for us is a whole host of obstacles that keep us more times than not being shut-lipped and walking the other way from the people who we really don't want to talk to, Je- talk to them about Jesus. These are the barriers. But if we're followers of Jesus, these are exactly the kind of people he speaks to. These are the exact kind of people that he welcomes into the kingdom. He sees no barrier when he sees the woman at the well in the middle of the day. He sees no barrier when he sees that she's a Samaritan. He sees no barrier when the fact that she's a serial adulterer. He speaks to her. Why does he do it? Maybe even ask this question. How can we have the resource of soul to cross those barriers when the opportunities come our way? How can we get there? How can we get there when we don't see the homeless man on the side of the road who's going to try to sell us a little paper and lock our doors instead of roll down the window? How do we get there? Or whatever the scenario is in your life. I don't know what it is. But what is it? What, how do we cross these barriers? These are the barriers we must cross for the making of disciples. Well, I think that leads us to the question of the belief that every disciple maker must hold. The belief that every disciple maker must hold. Why was Jesus able to cross these boundaries? Was it? As some scholars actually argue, was it because he was ahead of his time? He was an enlightened man, a man with a progressive social, moral outlook, a man who was willing to accept and embrace all people and all beliefs and all practices and essentially seeing that there are many ways up the mountain, that he was a man who essentially said, we are all really worshiping the same God, we are all really the same in the end. Was he a man who essentially would have been fit really nice in 21st century North American culture? One quite popular religious writer recently wrote, speaking about Christianity, Jesus shows us the beauty of non-dual thinking. In other words, a kind of thinking that doesn't try to separate anything. Labor he does in a world where love is all oneness. And where everyone's person's beliefs and practices exist as equals. Is this what Jesus is doing? Is Jesus essentially showing us a new world order with regards to faith? That it really doesn't matter what you believe. It really doesn't matter what you do. You just need to be accepting and embracing of everyone. Maybe. Let's think through this. 
On the one hand, Jesus does a number of significantly unsettling things like this throughout all of the Gospels. Over and over, he crosses these kinds of lines, racial, ethnic, social, religious, and moral. No barriers, according to Jesus, in entering the kingdom of God. We have dignitaries, we have Roman centurions, we have prostitutes, we have tax collectors. We have people who would never eat together or talk with one another, now converted and Christ followers. Even the twelve disciples themselves are a motley crew, a mixed pedigree. Now the reason for this broadness, this, we might say, inclusiveness that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ, interestingly, is not because he smothers out all of the differences as if everything else can be accepted. But the inclusiveness that we see displayed by Jesus becomes a fruit of the exclusiveness of the gospel itself. The exclusive Christ, the one way to heaven becomes the foundation for the inclusiveness of the crossing of every barrier. Where do we see this in the text? Verse 10, Jesus said, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who asked you give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, I want to hone in just briefly on that word gift. If the gospel is a gift... Do you know what you need in order to receive it? Need. Are we needy? Everybody in the world is needy. Everybody in the world is needy. Everybody needs the good gift that Jesus has come to give. If you knew the gift that I actually possess, you'd be asking me for water. It's what Jesus is saying. If you knew I was, he's saying, because I know what you need, and I've come here to meet that need. I've come for every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation. There's a universal, even cosmic, we might go as so far as to say, egalitarian call of the gospel. Now, what's interesting about modern scholars, and a lot of us in our sensibilities to North America, is that feels so right. That feels so good. That's exactly what it, it's exactly how it ought to be. That kind of inclusiveness, that kind of acceptance, that kind of embrace. What's interesting is, the more we focus upon the social inclusiveness, uh, to the detriment of not focusing on the exclusiveness of Christ, we actually destroy the foundation on which true gospel inclusiveness can operate. Let me show you how this works. Modern scholars today are happy to treat Jesus like an example. A man who shows us that we should love everyone no matter where it is that they come from and we should just be accepting of no matter what it is that they like and do and believe and practice whatever their truth is. They just absolutely love that. But they they reject a doctrine like the incarnation. They're happy to doubt the cross and its substitutionary atonement. But Jesus in this passage, by the end of this passage, is actually saying, no, I've come here to cross the most significant barrier imaginable. A barrier that no one else in the world can cross. No one, no other prophet, no other religion, 
no other guru, no other holy man. I have come to cross such a great barrier that I give you the foundation for which every other little barrier can be crossed. What do I mean by that? This woman, when she's speaking with Jesus, is shocked that a Jew would talk to a Samaritan. And you know what Jesus' response here is? You know when he says, you know, all he says to her, woman, give me a drink. That's it. That's it. How are you, a, a Jewish man, speaking to me, a Samaritan woman? And his response is, woman, if you knew who I was, and if you understood the gift of God, you'd be asking me for a drink. Now, let me put that in context. Woman, it's much grander than a Jewish man talking to a Samaritan woman. You ain't even begun to understand the boundary that I'm crossing. I am God on earth. I have come to bridge a cosmic division that makes this little racial thing and religious thing silly. (laughs) If you knew who was really talking to you, you wouldn't just be a little surprised. You'd be on your face in the ground. Now, here's what happens when you deny that doctrine. (laughs) If you deny the doctrine of salvation and the barrier between God and man, which is sin, the moral component of guilt and culpability, you don't have the foundation of the resource of that unity, of that crossing of Jesus to be able to apply to racial tension, to be able to apply to gender discrimination. To be able to apply to religious bigotry. You don't have the ability to do that because you don't have the resource of the cosmic unity that Jesus has brought in the gospel. And so a lot of times what we're actually seeking to do, I'm afraid, in the modern time is bring reconciliations with paltry resources that are unable to achieve those ends because we've never dealt with the real central issue of the division between God and man in the first place. Jesus says, I am He. I am He. Okay. This is the boundaries we must cross. This is, this is the belief that we must hold. This is what we as disciples of Christ, we must uphold the exclusiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ in order to live in the inclusiveness of the gospel. It's absolutely essential. So we have to learn, thirdly, the skill that every disciple maker must learn. The skill that every disciple maker must learn. Now, You may not have caught this as I said it a second ago because you're a friendly audience for the most part. Um, But I drew a a line. I said by by saying if you want to be inclusive, by truly inclusive in the way Jesus is, you have to exclusively believe Jesus. He gives you the foundation for true inclusivity, the right kind, the gospel kind. By saying that, I drew a big old line. I, I, I said only Jesus is the way. That's huge and, and very unpopular. And, and maybe you're wrestling with that this morning. And if, if you are, this is a good place to wrestle with it. I will tell you I've personally wrestled with that question much throughout my life. This is an important question. Is Jesus the only way? The exclusivity of Christ leading to this kind of pattern of discipleship? Well, here's what I want. We live in a time, I mean, live in a time that says, don't draw such lines. 
right? We live in the dark. It's, listen, it's impossible to not draw lines. Uh, to, to, if we say we shouldn't draw a line, what do we just do? We just, we just drew a line. I mean, there's no, there's no way not to. You're caught. <laughs> okay? you're, you're caught. You're in a world that God has made. And, and he, if you make a statement, you drew a line. I mean, that's just what you do. The question is not whether you're going to draw a line. The question is what line do you draw? And do you have the wisdom of how to draw it? What line are you going to draw? And do you have the wisdom and how to draw it? This is what discipleship and disciple making really comes down to in many regards. Now, I'm not going to completely satisfy your curiosity on that distinction today. We're going to talk about that in days to come. So come back. The problem, though, is really not with, with drawing lines. It's, it's learning how to do it and learning the right ones to draw. We tend to make one of two errors. We're in conversation with someone, and we're sheepish, maybe a little fearful. We don't want to hurt their feelings, so we don't draw any lines. Or we're the type that's pretty stodgy and rigid about our theological systems, and we decide to draw lines way, way, way far in much further than maybe we need to draw them. And we wind up running off a whole bunch of people before we needed to. What I want you to see in the context of this passage is that Jesus draws lines while being inclusive. He, he draws a line, a moral line, by confronting this woman's sin. And he draws a theological or biblical line by correcting her belief. He does both of those in this passage. Now, we've read this passage just like, oh, Jesus is so sweet. Uh, let's look at it. Um, let's look first at how he confronts her sinful practice. After Jesus says to her that he has the living water, and she gets all excited, and he says to her, then go get your husband. <laughs> this is Jesus' sweet moment. This is Jesus saying, woman, in order for you to enjoy the sweetness of this living water, you're going to have to come to terms with all of the broken cisterns of your life. Well, it's going to be really important for you in order to embrace truly and have the thirst that's within you truly quenched, you're going to have to forsake the muddy water that you have called clean all your life. You know that water that you've been drinking called husbands, called five husbands and the man you live with now, the, the husband well that you keep drinking from is only making you thirstier. It's just like Edmund and the Turkish delight. As the queen of Narnia try to, tries to get from him all of the secrets about how he got there and about his siblings... And she gives him some enchanted Turkish delight that will most certainly bed down his little hunger attack. But of course it doesn't, does it? It increases it. Every single one of us in here knows exactly what that's like. It's why when I mention Edmund and Turkish delight and drinking water that makes you thirsty, you nod in agreement. That's what sin does. And this woman knows that. When he says, go get your husband, he is drawing a line. He's doing it extremely wise. And we're going to talk about the wisdom of the way in which he's disciple-making in a week to come. But he's drawing a line. 
He's saying you've got to come to terms with something because he's really addressing what Jeremiah addressed with the people of Israel in Jeremiah chapter 2. In Jeremiah chapter 2, the prophet writes, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water. It's likely that Jesus is pulling from Jeremiah 2. And they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Jesus is essentially confronting this woman's sin, the root of idolatry in her life. What has really been the meaning of her existence, where she has gleaned what is what she understands to be the satisfaction and the true meaning of life. And he's telling her the living water and the broken cisterns don't mix. One's got to go. You can't serve both masters. Which will it be? Now, we find that the woman at this particular point does a really great job of not having to answer that question right away. Kind of like you and me a lot of the time. And we'll find that Jesus, the disciple maker, is very patient with her. But we'll talk about that next week. But he doesn't just draw a moral line here. He draws a truth line. I want you to see how he does this. If you'll notice the woman, she's first, of course, not willing to go where Jesus is trying to lead her. So she evades that kind of personal exposure, and begins to have this theological discussion with him about Mount Gerizim or Mount, the mountain in Jerusalem. And I love this about Jesus. He doesn't say, hey, wait, wait, you're changing the subject, which some of us would probably do. He just goes with it. He goes with it. He lets, he lets the conversation unfold. And as he lets the conversation unfold, she asks the question, so which is it? Where is it we should worship? And here's where Jesus is just, again, so sweet. Verse 22. You worship what you do not know. We, speaking of the Jews, worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. You're wrong. You're the worst worship in Jerusalem. And the fact is, you're ignorant. You don't know any better. Now, he said it much kinder than I just did, but that's what he said. He drew a line theologically in the sand. He said, this was right. This is wrong. Morally, he's done that now. He's also done it within the context of truth. Jesus is drawing a line. Now, he's crossing all kinds of barriers, but he's drawing lines. He is is simultaneously more liberal than the liberals and more conservative than the conservatives. He seems to, in some way or another, be far right and far left simultaneously. How can he do that? Well, we'll keep exploring that. But he gives us a clue. Uh, The very next verse, after verse 22, he says this, But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such worshipers to worship him. After Jesus has drawn this moral and theological line, he says, I want to tell you, I want to invite you somewhere, I want to invite you to be a true worshiper of God. I want you to know the little theological discussion that we were just having, it's going to become obsolete pretty soon, because it's not going to be about Gerizim or Jerusalem. The true worshiper of God is one who has spirit and truth, and that's who the Father is seeking. The woman says, you know, when the Messiah comes, (laughs) he's going to make all this make sense. (laughs) You kind of go, 
the woman's just going, what is he saying here? Like, what does this mean? When the Messiah comes, I know he's going to clear this all up for us. I am he. I am he. I want you to see what Jesus is saying here. The beginning of verse 23, when he says, but the hour is coming and is now here. That word hour is critical. Jesus never uses the word hour in all of the Gospel of John without it being a reference to the cross. When he's talking about the hour, my hour is coming, he's talking about the cross. He says, woman, there's a time that's coming where I will be lifted up on a cross and in the moment where my blood is shed and in the moment where my body is torn, in that moment it's not going to matter about Gerizim or Jerusalem because in that moment my body is the temple of God. Uh, You have the temple of God standing before you. And I invite you to worship me in spirit and in truth. We know Jesus intended this by this language because two chapters earlier, you're reading through the Gospel of John. In John chapter 2, Jesus is in Jerusalem with his disciples and they're looking at the glorious building, the temple. It took 46 years to build. And Jesus isn't magnificent. And he goes, you know what? Destroy this thing and I'll raise it up in three days. It says the disciples were really confused by by this language. But John gives us a little parenthetical phrase at the end of John chapter 2. And he says, but after Jesus was raised from the dead, they remembered this saying. That he is the way, the truth, and the life. That when you hold to the truth of the gospel... You walk in the skill of disciple making. You learn the intelligence of crossing boundaries and being inclusive in exactly the way the exclusive Jesus is. And in 2017, we're going to pursue that together. We're going to finally talk to people about Jesus, whom, to be quite honest, today we're not comfortable talking to. Let's pray to that end. Father in heaven, we want to be like Jesus. And for that to happen, we need more of him. So come, teach us these truths. Change us. Until we learn to be disciples as Jesus teaches us what it means to be a discipler. Bless us in this, we ask. In Christ's name, amen.